Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law 360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me from D.C. is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Pretty good, Natalie. I'm a little sad to be leaving us on our on my last episode before uh, taking the rest of my paternity leave, but you're going you're gonna to kill it next week. I know it. So you, the show hey, you, is in good hands. You get the better end of this deal with, at home with <laughs> that cute little true. baby. <laughs> Um, that's right. The, the justices are going to be taking a little break, too. Uh, it is it is winter break. Uh, the court this week heard the, the remaining argument. Well, I guess the last arguments of 2021. Um, it's been a Already? long... Already? My goodness. Yeah. <laughs> it's been a long year at the Supreme Court, but they finally made it through. But uh, there was a lot of interesting stuff going on at the court this week. There, were some, there was a big immigration case. There was uh, an ERISA lawsuit. There was a big one about the right to a fair trial that we had some coverage on. But we're going to be spending this episode talking about uh, yesterday's arguments in the case Carson versus Macon. Now, this is a big church-state separation case involving a main tuition assistance program that excludes religious schools. Now, it's got huge stakes in the areas of, you know, the First Amendment's Free exercise law imposes a clash between religious liberty and the separation of church and state, and we're going to get into all that, but there's something we're going to talk about first, right? That's right. We have an update on Biden's uh, SCOTUS commission. We talked about this before. Uh, there was a commission that this that Biden put together at the beginning of the year to look into potential reforms um, into the Supreme Court, and they have finally put out their their official report. And, and Jimmy, right. what was... What was kind of like the takeaway here? Well, the big picture is that they've sent their final report. It's a 288-page document over to President Biden for his consideration um, so that he can look at their findings about the whole topic of Supreme Court reform. This is obviously a super contentious issue that's been debated in recent years. Um, and this 34-member commission that consists of you know law professors and legal figures across the ideological spectrum has finally settled on the final language in this uh, mammoth report on the issue. And it talks about a lot of different of the current Supreme Court proposals. So we're not going to go into all 288 pages, but can you kind of give us the Sparknotes version here? Sparknotes version is the report outlines the history and legal background of the debate on Supreme Court reform. This is a debate that's taken hold in liberal circles who want to kind of combat what they perceive as the illegitimate takeover of the institution by Trump's three judicial appointments. But anyone who was expecting the the, the commission to come out swinging in favor or against some of these uh, reforms are going to be disappointed. It's a pretty neutral report. It painstakingly avoids taking a position on some of these issues, specifically court expansion or term limits. It simply kind of outlines the pros and cons of each. This is in contrast to an earlier version of the draft that actually seemed to kind of denounce court packing and endorse term limits. But at one of the uh, commission's earlier meetings, um, that draft got a significant amount of pushback from progressives on the commission, the progressive lawyers law professors on the commission who kind of took umbrage with the criticism of the idea of court expansion and in turn uh, conservatives who didn't like the idea of endorsing term limits. So that kind of pleased no one. And so the only way they were going to really come together and coalesce was around a report that really takes a neutral objective tone on the issue. I mean, to, to some extent, I guess this isn't super surprising in that, you know, this coalition of legal figures who are on all ends of this 
you know, ideological spectrum can't really agree on anything. But are, are, were you surprised by just how neutral and kind of how there wasn't really a, a big stance taken that this report uh, kind of came out with? I, I, I was because it was unanimously adopted. I mean, getting 34 law professors to agree on anything is a feat in and of itself. Right. And they were you know, um, they commended the commission for its respectful and civic um, dialogue throughout the many months that they were meeting. But at the same time, you know, they took uh, Tuesday's vote on this report as an opportunity to kind of voice their their deep divisions on the underlying proposals themselves. And, you know, specifically, you know, we had t- D- the former D.C. Circuit Judge Thomas B. Griffith, who is, you know, a member of the commission. He was a former uh, conservative George W. Bush appointee, and he basically says that he totally objects to the idea of either court expansion or court reform. He thinks the whole idea of the Supreme Court as being a, this dangerous institution is totally ill-founded. It's an institution, he says, that's built up its legitimacy over the course of years. Now, contrast that to what we heard from Harvard University constitutional law professor Lawrence Tribe, who said, you know, don't take this vote as a vote of confidence in the Supreme Court as an institution. Yes, I think we did a good job coming up with this report, but I still have absolutely no confidence in the legitimacy of the court. And he outlined a number of reasons why he thinks that, including some of the court's recent conservative decisions on things like voting rights, gerrymandering, etc. So there's still, even if they were able to agree on this, there's this didn't really do a whole lot to, to, to bring people together on the underlying subject matter. Well, it certainly sounds like Judge Griffith and um, Professor Tribe are on very far apart here. <laughs> was, was, were there any changes the commission, like, as a group would like to see? There were. Um, the, the, the commission, while it ducked some of those other issues, it did suggest support for bringing more transparency to the court's shadow docket, which we've talked about on the podcast at length, you know, the emergency rulings and orders that, you know, one line, hidden votes, not really explained, and they're on some of the bigger controversial subjects of the day. So the court, the commission wanted to see the court really build up its explanatory process for some of the, for some of its emergency docket cases. There was another um, change that they would like to see in the form of, even if they don't have a binding ethics code on the justices, uh, the the commission would have liked to see at least an advisory ethics code. They said that that would have a positive effect as well. So that, those were kind of the modest proposals that the the commission did at least seem to agree on. Okay, so so obviously nothing earth shattering when it comes to court packing or term limits, but those are really interesting proposals. Where does this leave us now that this report is kind of out in the world? Because the commission doesn't really have power in and of itself to do anything, right? Yeah, I mean, this leaves us at square one, right? Because remember that this whole idea of a, of a commission made up of law professors to study the issue of Supreme Court reform, it was basically used by Biden as a way to deflect a lot of questioning that he was receiving at the tail end of the 2020 campaign about his stance on the issue of court packing. And he said, you know, I'm going to get together the, the brightest legal minds and they're going to study this issue. Well, now they've gotten back to him and essentially left the ball, like left things exactly as they were when he created the thing. So now it's back in Biden's court and he's going to once again face a ton of pressure from, you know, outside groups across the ideological spectrum to say what he's going to do about the Supreme Court. And you got to imagine that this Supreme Court term, which as we know and we talk about every week is presenting a number of huge cases 
that's only going to fuel the conversation. So I would say if um, the, the main takeaway here is that uh, Biden's probably going to be once again in the middle of this, uh, you know, very fiery debate over the Supreme Court. Yeah, no, I, I, I see what you mean on on Biden. I, I also feel, though, like, you know, obviously this isn't just coming out in a bubble. And like, I, I find it interesting that it's coming out at a time when there's actually a lot of reform measures uh, for the federal judiciary kind of floating around Congress, everything from kind of stricter stock trading disclosures to like, you know, stronger new anti-harassment and whistleblower protections for employees of the federal judiciary, which are kind of percolating and, and seeing some movement in, in Congress. You know, I, I could see this report potentially fueling further proposals in Congress, potentially. Potentially. I mean, there's something for everyone in this report, but at the same time, there's really nothing much for anyone. You know what I mean? It, it only goes, it only helps the conversation go so much farther. But that was the update uh, for the commission. Well, let's transition to our main topic this week, which is Wednesday's oral arguments in Carson versus Macon, uh, the challenge to Maine's school subsidy program uh, that denies tuition assistance for religious education. Jimmy, you covered the hearing in that case yesterday. Kind of set us up, you know, what are some of the underlying facts of this case? So this case centers around, as you say, a longstanding program in Maine that provides tuition assistance to families of students without local secondary schools, public secondary schools who want to send their children to a private school to receive, you know, a secular education. Because in Maine, you know, in many of the school districts, they don't have a local public secondary school. So the, the, the program essentially was designed to effectively aid families who can send um, their children to maybe a private school nearby to receive this secular education. But since 1980, Maine has excluded sectarian schools that teach religion from the list of eligible schools that parents can receive money to send their, their children to. So this has set up a First Amendment battle from a group of parents who claim that the state is discriminating against their religious beliefs in violation of the Free Exercise Clause by preventing them from receiving this assistance to send them to these private religious schools. So one of the families is the Nelsons. They want to send their son to a school called Temple Academy, which they say aligns with their sincerely held religious beliefs. But Temple Academy obviously can't be approved for tuition assistance, or the families can't receive tuition assistance to send their um, son to Temple Academy because it provides what the state calls a thoroughly Christian and biblical worldview. And the Nelsons say they can't afford to send their son to the school without this tuition assistance. And so we also have in the case the Carsons who sent their daughter to Banger Christian School. Um, and they say they had to pay the tuition of the school out of pocket due to what they see as the state's unfair and discriminatory practice of excluding schools that instill a biblical worldview. So this has set up, a, you know, like I say, this this First Amendment battle and the Supreme Court on Wednesday heard oral arguments about the constitutionality of Maine's exclusion of these religious schools from the list of eligible recipients of tuition assistance. Now, remember, this, the money actually goes to the parents, but ultimately it ends up in the hands of the school. Okay, so I'm getting a little bit of deja vu because this does sound like some recent high court cases that have involved allegedly discriminatory state programs. What's different about this one? Why are we kind of back at the court for this specific program? Well, without getting 
too in the weeds. And I know that's hard to say on the show because we always do. Um, in the 2020 I like the case, weeds sometimes. Yeah, we, we live in the weeds, <laughs> Natalie. So in the 2020 case called Espinoza and a 2017 case called Trinity Lutheran, the Supreme Court held that states can't use an institution's religious status as a basis to exclude it from a generally available state program. But in this case, the First Circuit held that Maine's program isn't discrimination based on religious status, but rather, the Court of Appeals said, it's an attempt to prevent state funding of religious education. In other words, it's the use of the funds, not the religious status of the schools, that makes the difference and justifies the program. After all, under Maine's program, um, religious schools aren't simply excluded as a matter of course. In fact, the program says, or Maine says, that some religious schools that are able to provide a secular education can still be a recipient or can still participate in the program, meaning that parents can still use this tuition assistance to send their kids to those religious schools. So what's the parents' argument? What, what, what did they argue to the justices? So we heard from Michael Bindis of the Institute for Justice, who was representing the parents at oral arguments on Wednesday. And he basically said that the, this, this distinction between use and status has no basis in the Constitution's text or history. And here's a clip where he kind of uh, succinctly makes his point. There's no basis for a use-based departure from strict scrutiny in the text of the Free Exercise Clause. There's no basis for it in this court's free exercise precedent. And there is no basis for it in common sense. Religious schools, after all, teach religion, just as a soccer team plays soccer or a book club reads books. Yes, it is part of what they do. It is also part of who they are. Of course, religious schools also teach secular subjects and satisfy every secular requirement to participate in the tuition assistance program. It is only because of religion that they are excluded. So now before we get to the justices, let's hear what Maine's defense of its program was. Well, Maine says that the, the whole point of the program is to offer students without a local public secondary school the equivalent of a public school education, which is, you know, all students are entitled to under Maine law. But not, the point is, the point is not to subsidize religious instruction, Maine says. The state... Um, and I should say that the state's being supported in this case by the Biden administration. The state says that they have valid reasons under the Establishment Clause. This is the, the clause of the Constitution that, that bars states from you know, endorsing official religion. They have valid re reasons under the Establishment Clause from using taxpayer funds on religious, case, religious education. And, the, and they go further and say that the religious schools chosen by the parents, the Temple Academy and Bangor Christian School, um, have discriminatory policies against LGBTQ students and faculty, and they shouldn't be forced to use taxpayer funds that ultimately go to those schools. So here's another clip from Maine Chief Deputy Attorney General Christopher Taub. Maine has determined that as a matter of public policy, public education should be religiously neutral. This is entirely consistent with this court's holdings that public schools must not inculcate religion and should instead promote tolerance of divergent religious views. The petitioners want an entirely different benefit, instruction designed to instill religious beliefs at taxpayer expense. They are not being discriminated against. They simply are not being offered a benefit that no family in Maine is entitled to. So religious liberty cases like these do tend to divide along the ideological lines with the justices. You know, is that what we saw in yesterday's hearing as well? 
That's exactly what I was hearing from the justices. There was a clear ideological split. Um, and I would say, you know, unlike maybe other cases, we've heard this term where you have one or more conservatives expressing, you know, at least some sympathy for a narrower position in the case. This was clearly a case where we saw the court's six to three conservative majority express, you know, outright scrutiny and skepticism of Maine's position in this case. There didn't seem to be, at least from the um, Republican appointees on the court, any doubt that what Maine is doing by excluding re- these uh, funds from going to religious schools, that they are actively discriminating against religion. And, and I'll just play a clip here from, from Chief Justice John Roberts, who is questioning Taub, the attorney from Maine, about um, you know, a scenario that he envisions where you know, perhaps uh, one school vows not to teach religion to students can be eligible for the program as long as they provide a secular education. Let's suppose you have two schools. School A is run by religion A, and, and that religion has a doctrine that they should provide service to their, their neighbors. So they're running, set up and running a school. But there's nothing in their, in their doctrine about propagating the faith or whatever, so it does look just like a public school, but it's owned by religion. Religion B also has a school, but its doctrine requires uh, 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 adherence to uh, educate children in the faith, and the, the school is infused in every subject with their view of the faith. Now, would the first school get uh, uh, the uh, uh, funds? Yes. Okay. Would the second school? No. And that's because of the difference between the two religions, right? That's because they are their, — their program is specifically instilling and promoting religion right. in students. And the other and religion does not. That, that is correct. So you're discriminating among religions based on their belief, right? Now, just as Brett Kavanaugh had similar objections to the program. So here's, here's, here's Kavanaugh, and he's speaking to Deputy Solicitor General Malcolm Stewart. Now, Stewart was arguing on behalf of the Biden administration in support of Maine. But at its core, Mr. Stewart, you're suggesting that with, say, two neighbors in, in Maine, in a neighborhood, and they both uh, — there's not a public school available — and the first neighbor says, we're going to send our uh, child, children, to secular private school. They get the benefit. The next-door neighbor says, well, we want to send our children to a religious private school, and they're not going to get the benefit. And I don't see how your suggestion that the subsidy changes the analysis. That's just discrimination on the basis of religion right there at, at the neighborhood level. So I think these arguments, more than in some cases, was very open to a lot of hypotheticals from the justices. Uh, Certainly we've heard that already so far. Um, Now, am I wrong or did the subject of critical race theory come up at one point? And how did this get woven in? You're not wrong, Natalie. This came up from, from questioning from Justice Samuel Alito. And it was basically in the context of him trying to make the point that the the state the state program here seems to single out religious instruction as the sole type of instruction that would disqualify an otherwise accredited school from being able to participate in this program and it you know the the justices were talking to Maine's attorney about you know different types of you know education that we would obviously know to be immoral like white supremacy or something like that and and Taub is saying you know no we obviously would find a way to exclude white supremacist schools from this program. Um, and, and Justice Alito says, well, what about a school that chooses to teach 
uh, critical race theory? Would, you know, would that be would that be allowed? Um, so that's the context in which it came up. You know, make of that what you will. It's a whole hot, hot, really hot flashpoint in American politics today. But it just kind of shows the the really controversial subject at 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 hand, which is you know uh, the ability of parents to choose. It's the whole debate surrounding school choice, and that was definitely front and center at oral arguments on Wednesday. So we really haven't heard yet from the liberal justices so far. What did they have to say? All three liberal justices on the court came to the defense of Maine in this case. And they were very outnumbered throughout the arguments. But um, over and over again, we heard from them kind of a concern that the Supreme Court is, is, is further eroding this wall of separation between church and state. And I, I just want to focus on some of the comments from Justice Kagan. So she... She basically notes that there's tension between the free exercise clause of, of, of the Constitution and the establishment clause of the Constitution. You know, one prohibits religious discrimination while the other ensures the separation of church and state. So Kagan says, and, and she borrows a phrase that's been used in the Supreme Court's, you know, uh, religion clauses, jurisprudence uh, for years now, and that this idea that there's like a play in the joints here between these two seemingly diametrically oppo- opposed clauses. And she says this play in the joint should allow states to kind of tailor these programs um, to consider some of the public policy issues surrounding religion in the schools and, and, and perhaps to avoid some of the divisiveness that directly funding religion might cause. And so here's a clip where she kind of alludes to the policies, the, the, what she calls the discriminatory policies of these two schools and how it could factor in a state's decision not to fund or to provide tuition assistance toward them. Some states would, you know, have such programs and love them. And another state says, for the reasons that Justice Breyer gave, you know, we think that this would be incredibly divisive in our community. And you can think of a wide variety of reasons why that would be. It would lead to too great entanglement. It's not good for the religion itself. Or um, other people in our community won't understand why we're funding this program. I mean, these schools are overtly discriminatory. They're proudly discriminatory. Other people won't understand why in the world their taxpayer dollars are going to discriminatory schools. For any of a number of reasons, a state can say, we don't want to play in this game. And the question is, isn't this play in the joints idea, wasn't it specifically um, understood to allow different kinds of solutions in different sorts of areas. So I know we don't like to, you know, crystal ball here too much, but uh, with this one, are, are we looking at a 6-3 decision here? You know, if I, if I was a betting man, um, I would probably say, yes, we're looking at a 6-3 to three decision to um, uh, at least hold this particular aspect of Maine's program to be unconstitutional. But, you know, you never know what goes on in the in the uh, you know back rooms of the Supreme Court as the justices deliberate over these very contentious issues and and start and starts to and start to circulate um, opinions, but I think this could be another one similar to the gun case argued in November and the abortion case argued in December, where the conservative majority really just flexes its muscle to to you know in this case to expand the scope of the free exercise clause of the Constitution to accommodate these religious liberty claims. You know, this is going to be um, something that church-state separation advocates are worried about. This, this, what they consider to be the further erosion of this this wall, and 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 a ruling that they think 
and they fear could require taxpayer funds to go directly to religious, or not directly, but go indirectly to religious institutions around the country. So definitely one to, to look out for. I'm not expecting it anytime soon. This could be another of the, you know, big blockbuster cases that comes down in the in the last month of the term. But it's it's shaping up to be quite a big one, Natalie. Yeah, June June seems to be shaping up potentially to, to be quite busy. Uh, Jimmy, as always, this has been great. Um, thanks so much. Thanks, Natalie. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. <laughs>